if you did something, then we would get beat with it like an extension cord. And, and a lot of times I didn't even understand why. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Hi, everybody. Today I have Joyce Johnson here, who is a mental health counselor, and uh, you have your own firm. I do. True Calling Counseling and Consulting. Yes, I do. Well, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So, lots to talk about. Uh, You were in corporate America for 20 plus. 25 years. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So, we'll talk about what compelled you to to retire and and come into the mental health field. But uh, you do have personal life experiences that have adversely affected your mental health. Can you uh, take us through wow. your your journey? I know that's loaded, but... Yeah, it's a lot, and you can cut me off if I get too long-winded, <laughs> but um, I grew up in a single-parent uh, home. My mom uh, was widowed when I was... Before I even started kindergarten. And so she had four kids. And if I look back now, she was probably, she wasn't even 30 and had four kids and widowed. And so uh, her focus was just keeping a roof over our head and food on the table. And she was a disciplinarian. And so we didn't have a whole lot of time or room. Nobody even asked us, how are you feeling today? You know, kind of what's going on at school? So I got bullied a lot. And I didn't have any place to go with that. And so uh, I went inside of myself. And when I say that, that means I didn't talk. And I think that's what I see a lot is that we don't talk about things. And and that's kind of how I went through my life, not talking about how I felt, what I thought or anything like that, because I didn't see that modeled. And so my mom had four kids. Uh, I was number two. Um, school was like a sanctuary for me and she had high high expectations for us as well. You know, she said she never really helped us with our homework, but she said, don't bring home a C. So we knew if we brought home a C, there was going to be hell to pay. (laughs) And I wasn't trying to do that because again, she was, she was just a no nonsense person. And, and I really think that affected me because I'm very, I love to learn. I love to ask questions. I love to know things. And I that'll probably carry over as I talk about kind of what I did later. But um, we got uh, I call it beatings. It wasn't it wasn't discipline because no, there was never any conversation. If you did something, then we would get and beat with it like an extension cord. And and a lot of times I didn't even understand why. It's like, why is this happening? Uh, so that kind of goes back to the no conversation. Right, part exactly. Of it. Why is this happening? And never any explanation or anything. And so sometimes it's like you start questioning yourself, like, what did I do? And so, again, that just really, from an emotional standpoint, that just really, and mentally, that really messed with me a lot. But I always had school to, to go back to. Were you... Would you say that it made you bitter and unhappy or just confused? I, I, you know what? I, 
now that I look back at it, I think a little bit of both. But if you had asked me before I started my journey, my personal journey, I probably wouldn't have been able to tell you because I, I didn't know how to label it. Okay, I just knew. Some, the only thing I can say is I knew something wasn't right. I just didn't know what it was. And so that always was in the back of my head. It's like, this can't be right. This can't be the way it's supposed to be. Were you able to talk to your siblings? I mean, was there a relationship there no, emotionally? We did not. We And we talk about that to this day. No, we. I think we were so scared that none of us said anything to the other one. And um, having, and it's interesting that you say that because when I was 23 years old, uh, me and my sister started talking and we found out that all three of us were sexually abused by one of my mother's boyfriends that she brought into the home. And, and I was 23. And so we never talked about it. We were so afraid of my mother and what could possibly happen that we, we just didn't say anything. You didn't even say anything to her about that? My mom? Yeah. Oh, God, no. Really? No, because, and again, this to me is how, when you think of just a child and how they're supposed to be protected and taught, you know, my, I don't ever remember my mom telling us, if someone touches you, let me know. And and my mom said, well, I did tell you that. she When I was 23, she said that, and I said, and, you know, you remember what you remember. And so I said, well, maybe I'm misremembering. And then I asked my sisters, and they're like, no, she never said that. And so I'm like, it was just, it was just really hard to just think about that the person who's supposed to love you unconditionally didn't have your best interest at heart. And that's really hard to come to grips with, especially since it was just a single parent home and, and like we didn't have anybody to talk to. We were afraid that if we said anything, that that was going to come back on us and just not even willing to take that chance. And it just, to me, shows how, and I see this a lot in my class, how pervasive that, 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 that what you get taught at home, how, how deep it goes. And then it carries on to generation and generation. So school was a safe haven. School was, that was my thing, school. But- you didn't ever say anything there? No. Oh, uh, some of these teachers my mom grew up with. Oh, okay. And so you it was like you just didn't know who to trust. And 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 then who was going to do anything? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, a couple of my teachers and we lived in a really small town. So you could walk it in 15 minutes. And some of these teachers my mom grew up with they went to the same church or they knew my grandmother or whatever. And so it, it, no, we, no, we didn't. That did not seem like an opportunity <laughs> at the time. But you liked school. I love school because, again, I got to learn things I, I and I was good at it. And so, the, you know, being called out uh, to say, Joyce, you know, you got this grade or Joyce helped with this or Joyce helped with that. I got a lot of positive uh, attention at school from my teachers because I was a, I was always a good student, always. Now, with that information coming home, was there ever any rah-rah from mom? No. It was like you did what you were supposed to do. 
And like I said, and if you did, if you got a standard, right, exactly. You did what you're supposed to do. So there was no good job pat on the back. You did hard work. No, it wasn't any of that. It's like you did what you're supposed to do. That was the attitude. But again, if they we she was looking for C's, she was looking for anything less than a C. And then we would or any comments, because back then we got the report cards you had to take home and then then they had to sign them and then you had to take it back. So if there was negative comments, you were dealt with. But if anything positive, you're doing what you're supposed to do. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Exactly. It was it was not balanced at all. At all. Yeah, exactly. So the bullying was that throughout middle school, high school? (laughs) Okay, so I was always tall when I even when I was in kindergarten, I was the tallest person. That doesn't go well (laughs) as a female. Back then it didn't. And so, again, not understanding that, you know, we are all different and nobody needs to be the same. But kids can be cruel. And so, again, there was never any, you know, you were made the way you were made. You look the way you look. And that's okay because we're all unique and different. No, there was none of that conversation. And so going into that environment where these children were probably going through some of the same things I was going through in my house and they're coming to school, taking it out on other people. And so I didn't um, have any, again, any place to go with that. Uh, So I focused on my schoolwork, laughed it off when it really, really was hurtful. It was really hurtful. Which I think, I don't know about a lot of people, but that's kind of a response. Yeah. Is to shake it off right. or laugh it off or right. have a you know big personality to mm-hmm. right. to kind of mask what's exactly. really what you're going through, yes, which is exactly. so hard. And that's a good way to say it because a mask, I felt like I had been wearing a mask most of my whole life. And that we'll get to that as we talk about why the change came. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think it's getting better, but peers being able to talk to peers. Yes, exactly. And say, you know, back then... At least for me, I know that I wish I could have been able to look at one of my friends and say, "Man, mm-hmm. something's right. up." Right. You know, but so that that's even another challenge. Is um, so, yeah, you were up against it pretty good. Yeah, exactly. And and again, school was my refuge. So I basically did what I was told and kept my head down. That's what I tried to do. And so when I say that, you think about military, army in a war, and. I can kind of think of my life as that versus having a place to go to where you felt safe and secure and loved and and just nurtured. No, that was not the case at all. It's unfortunate. Yeah, it was. Okay, so uh, after high school? After high school, um, I wanted to be an accountant. But again, my mom and my counselor said, oh, you're good in math and science, so you should be an engineer. And I'm like, okay. So, again, that path served me well, but, again, nobody asked me what I wanted to do. And so I I felt like I was doing what they wanted me to do, even though I succeeded in it, but it was not what I wanted to do. Nobody asked me. And so I went to uh, university, got an engineering degree. Uh, co-opt at an uh, aircraft company in uh, St. Louis. It was McDonnell Douglas at the time. I don't know what it's called now. Um, but again, I was doing what I was supposed to do. And, uh, and, 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 but 
again, I didn't ask myself if this is really because I it was like, what is my mom going to say? What is my mom going to say? What is she going to say? And I always had that plan in the back of my head. So um, after your you know first engineering job, where did things go and how was life at that time? Uh, again, I, I really felt like I was wearing a mask. So I would always be happy and I would always kind of- Even in, when you started your professional yeah, career? Yeah. I, it was like I was playing this role. Mm-hmm. So I, I did have friends and we talked only to a certain degree, but I never told anybody I was sexually abused. I never, until I was 23, which I was out of college by then. And then it just stayed within my family, like my sister's. So I wasn't even comfortable sharing that with anybody. And I think part of the reason, because I thought it was my fault Mm -hmm. and I didn't understand. And then the reaction that I got from my mom when I told her, it just, it just, it just broke me down. And what she said to me was that it was about her. It wasn't about me. She said to me, you're trying to make people believe that I'm a bad mother. And that just like wounded me. And I said, I can't even talk to you. And I and then that was it. And I talked to my sisters about it, but I didn't talk to my mom about it because I don't think she was capable. And then the three of you were able to share stories or, or we let, ta- let we, each other know that it was that it happened to all of us. Yeah. And I was like, wow, it happened to you. And I'm like, and, and, and again, we didn't tell we didn't talk because. Again, hindsight being twenty twenty, if all three of us or one of us had said something, then maybe that would have kept it from happening to somebody else. So you continued into the corporate, yes, yeah, so corporate world one, a, as an engineer. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I got hired at Procter and Gamble, uh, and and they were hiring engineers at the time. I was, you know, I wasn't using my degree, but I was the fact that I had the degree. kind of got me into the door and then they trained you for whatever they wanted you to do. So I started in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, Very, very good experience. Uh, I still keep in touch with some of the people uh, to this day because it was just such a positive experience. And I I don't, I wouldn't have wanted to start any place else because I could focus on my job. I didn't have to think about anything. It was primarily Caucasian so I could go days without seeing a black person, which I didn't I came to not like that. But at the beginning of my career, it kept me focused. And so I was able to learn, do well. Um, but then after about four and a half years, I'm like, I need to I need to change. I need to kind of start thinking about my life outside of work. But for the most part, I mean, people who knew me, they didn't know right. what had happened. And until I started my business and everything some people still didn't know because i never talked about it with them blame shame guilt yeah i just yeah and and plus my mom would have had a fit if i had said that right uh because again i was still in the back of my head what is mom gonna say what is mom gonna say so was in green bay moved to new orleans that's where i met my son's father so i have two sons um and I, I didn't even talk to him about that uh, because, again, it was such a stigma. Uh, it was such a uh, or I felt ashamed. I felt like I could have done something about it. I should have done something about it. So I didn't even talk to him about it. But one thing I did know is that 
I was going to protect my kids. So some of the behaviors that I saw as a kid, I was not going to allow them to impact my children in that way. And so uh, I felt like I've been successful in that. So um, nine and a half years in New Orleans. And then because I had two small children and was going through a divorce, uh, I knew I needed to move because I wasn't having work-life balance. And because I still wasn't dealing with my issues, things kind of compounded. So I felt, I think that's when I really started getting depressed. Uh, When things started happening, when I hadn't dealt with my childhood stuff, then I had kids, then I got a, you know, got married, got a head, kids, got a divorce. And it just seems like everything was like caving in. And I, and I think that's when I started really getting depressed. And so knowing that something needed to change, ended up moving to Cincinnati, uh, staying with Proctor. And then, and that was in 04, 2004. And started getting that work-life balance. Kids started growing up. What were you doing for your depression? Nothing. Nothing. Internalizing and doing what we do. Exactly. My food, my addiction is uh, food. And so I'm still working on that because it, it's been with me so long that I still have to figure out some things as to why I do what I do. But there's some other things that I've been able to do to deal with it since then. So the reason I started going to therapy, and I didn't tell my mom either because I knew she was going to say, why are you going to those people telling them your business? And basically, that mm-hmm. was the thing. What happened to me is that long day at work, two small kids, and uh, kids were being kids. And my son spilled, I think, some milk. And I got so mad. And I yelled at him. And I looked at the fear in his face. And it just stopped me cold. Because I knew I had that kind of fear with my mom. And I did not want my kids to be afraid of me in that way. And I knew I needed to go get help. And so that's what made me go to counseling. Good for you. No matter what, because I did not want my kids to ever look at me that way again. How old were they at that point? I don't even think they were five. They were really young. Um, So at that point, did that start to help? Um, the counseling? Yeah. I, I I think it was a combination of things. So and at some point in there, panic attacks started to happen. Mm. And I, I'm like, what the heck is this? Um, and so I went to my primary care physician, told her what was going on, and then she prescribed me some anxiety, anti-anxiety medicine. And And so at that point, I wasn't in the therapy medication as a dual has a dual role in addition to other things. I wasn't thinking like that. Um so I would I would go to counseling. I feel like I did get some relief and I think most people do when they first go because they're like letting things yeah. out that they've never let out before. But I don't necessarily believe I was consistent at it. But then again, the more things start, like as my kids grew up, started growing up, and I started dealing with different things related to just being a single parent. And the panic attacks, they lessened, but they didn't stop. 
And I'm like, okay, Joyce, you got to do something else as well. And then work was stressful as, as Panic well. Panic attacks are the worst. Yeah, they exactly. They really are. Exactly. And so uh, then I think that's when it really kind of said, okay, medication and therapy, medication and therapy. And so I think I did pretty well. And that, and so what really got me to thinking I wanted to be a counselor uh, is, again, I was having really high stress on my job because of uh, some people I was working with. They triggered me. And to the point where I was thinking, if this person says one more thing to me, I'm going to say something that's probably going to get at and somebody's going to ask me to leave. And that's not a good place to be (laughs) at all. So I was able to talk to my boss and I was able to get some time off uh, vacation. I was able to rearrange my schedule to get some vacation. So I took up actually a, a month off at the beginning of 20, I think it was 2013. Or 2014, I think my it's I can't remember the year actually. That's really interesting because it was the year my mom died. So I was off like January, most of January, and a couple of weeks in February. And before I was supposed to go back to work, my mom died, and that and she died unexpectedly, and that shook me so badly that I was like. What is going on? And I couldn't I couldn't deal. So I ended up having to take off work. Actually, a couple of friends of mine said, if you don't leave, we're going to make sure you're not here by Monday. And meaning they were going to make sure I went out on disability because Joyce didn't cry. OK, that Joyce doesn't cry. And so a friend of mine, we were supposed to go to lunch. I she called me and said she couldn't go and. And and then I just start bawling. And that was at work. And I don't do that. And she's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, oh, and I was just crying. And so uh, I said, I'll be okay. I'll be okay. So then I went and talked to my other friend. And she's like, she was talking to me. And then I just start bawling again. And then that's when she told me, Joyce, you need to get out of here. And I'm glad she said that because really I was only capable of taking care of my kids. I was not capable of doing that job and taking care of my kids. And I had to get out of there. And then that's when I was really diagnosed. Uh, I was already taking something for anxiety, but I wasn't taking anything for depression. So I actually, my psychologist at that time, so I had, I had been through a number of therapists. I was seeing a psychologist at this time. And she's like, you need to go see a psychiatrist because we need to get you on some medication. So when I went to the psychiatrist, we went through the DSM and basically she diagnosed me with PTSD based on all the criteria that's in the manual. And uh, so then we started working on medication management with anxiety, depression, as I still I was going to therapy twice a week. I think I might have been going three times a week at one point in time because I just couldn't cope. And I knew I had to take care of my kids because they only had me. Uh, and so that's what I did. And I and I think I was off work for like three or four months just trying to get that together. And so the more I started learning about, because I never thought I had PTSD, but when I started, when she diagnosed me with that and I started learning about it, I'm like, oh my gosh, because you think PTSD, you think war right. veterans. or I'm like, I'm not a war veteran, but... 
when I think about all this stuff that I've experienced, exactly, it was a war <clears throat> and I wasn't handling it well. And so that's what really, I'm like, people need to know this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. People need to know what I know so that they can hopefully make their lives better uh, and make the people who uh, are in their lives not afraid of them or just, it, there's a better way. There's a, and there's a reason why we act like this. So once I started learning that, I'm like, I got to go to school. So trying to figure that out. So that's the moment when you said, I want to be a therapist. Yes. Or a counselor. To, right. Yeah. Trying to figure that out. And I'm like, okay, do I work? Do I do I go to school part time? I don't know. But uh, after being, P&G had been lay, uh, not laying off people. They had been given packages. And so, you know. Me being the good old school person, I'm like, I'm going to stay here until I'm 55 and then I'm going to retire like a normal PNG person. And then I'm like, no. When my mom died, I felt free. I felt free to make whatever decision I wanted to make with my life. And I was 48 years old. And I've, and the fact that I felt free, because she was not longer on and I didn't have to explain to her why I was doing what I was doing I felt the freedom to do that better late than never yes exactly yeah. there is it's never too late as right. long as you have breath in your body right so fast forward you left you retired early yes yes I did I retired early and got your I got my master's and I actually did it online at Liberty University because I wanted to have a Christian perspective on counseling because my faith, what I, again, and I guess that's interwoven into this. In 2006 is when I really started working on my faith. And I think that was another piece of it that led me to say, what am I doing? And I think there was always this disagreement, this internal struggle for me to say, corporate America, six-figure job, doing well, great at your job. Don't leave this job. But I felt like I was not being true to myself. I was doing what other people expected me to do or what, other, you know, what other people defined as success. But it was not, you know, when I was young, I remember telling my mom, I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. Well, can't you be happy and make $100,000? That's what she said to me when I was a kid. And I'm like, I don't care about the money. Now, I know we have to have money. It's a tool and that kind of sure. thing. But it should not be the it, – it couldn't be for me the driving force why I did what I did, especially at that age in my life because I just – I couldn't do it anymore. And I'm thankful that, you know, Proctor offered one last package and I had the years of service and the age that I could retire early because if that hadn't happened, I don't – I, I I probably would have figured it out another way, but that's the route that I took. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you had the courage to do that. I mean, yes. you know, which is, you know, congratulations. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's, that's had to be liberating once you. Yes. Because I loved it. And again, I love school. I loved it. Loved it. Two years full time. That was my job. And in, in addition to taking care of my kids. So you and, got back to your. Your happy place. Yes, you know, for I a couple did. Of years. Loved it. Loved great. it. That was my element. I loved it. Okay, so now you have you're working on one more license, but you are 
Yes, not I, life. I'm a bona fide. Oh, yes, I am a board licensed counselor from the Counselor Social Work and F- Marriage and Family Therapist Board of Ohio. It's <laughs> a mouthful. <laughs> yes, I have my LPC license, which is the first level license, and I'm working on my clinical license, which I hope to have by the end of the year. So, what is your focus? Oh gosh, my my focus really is being a niche person. And when I say that, there's some people who can afford the community-based agency, or or there's some people who qualify, I'm sorry, for the community-based agencies. And then there's some people who can pay that $150 an hour self-pay counselor. But there's some people who can't afford that. And there's some people who don't qualify for the community-based agencies. I want to be in that middle. So I want it to be affordable. I want it to, I want people to see people that look like them. I get that a lot from people. They're like, I want to see somebody who looks like me. And then also the fact that I'm a smaller agency or a smaller company business. And a lot of people said, I don't want to be a number. Okay. And so I feel like that has been the people that I have attracted to my practice is filling that niche. Because I think that anyone who and I and I take I I do pro bono counseling for uh, Mental Health America. I I work with uh, CMHA has a uh, uh, a program where they bring the services to Winton Terrace and Finlater Garden. So I volunteer in that capacity, um, and I just you know I take clients and and I do payment plans and. I just want it. I want people to get the help that they need. And if I can't help them for whatever reason, then I want to point them in that right direction. Because uh, there's there's a person uh, who said counselors should never be in competition with each other because there's so many mm-hmm. people out there who need help. Everybody could use a therapist. Exactly. At some point. Exactly. Yeah. And it's even if it's just to talk about what's going on and lay it out on the table and be able to say. Am I thinking about this the right way or or what else am I missing? I tell my clients all the time, I'm trying to provoke your thinking because sometimes we can only see so far. But let's broaden that a little bit and say, what are my options? Because I think with the things that people have gone through, sometimes people don't feel like they have a lot of options. And I mean, and I know that's how I felt as a kid. I'm like, there, there has to be something else. There has to be something better yeah. and being able to help people figure that out. And you have a particular interest in addressing the stigma, mental oh. health in the African-American community. Oh, yes. Community. And so that my bus- my face is on my business card. It's on most of my advertising because I want people to see me and come talk to me and and know that it's okay to talk. One of the biggest things that I think is prevalent in the African-American community is Whatever happens in this house stays in this house. And the house could be causing all the trauma. So you don't keep it in the house. You have to air out that and look at it and then try to make changes that are needed for you to have a better quality of life. Is that predominantly the community you serve? I would say about 98% of my clients are African-American, but I have some uh, non-African-American clients as well. And addressing these things is so important as a youth. Do yes. you work with young people? Um, I work with 12 and up okay. uh, because I think it takes a specialized skill to work with a 
uh, a child younger than that who may not be able to articulate what's going on. And so I will I refer them to other people sure. who I know are specialized in that. But if so, I do work with teenagers. Well, 12 is such a crucial age. I'm yeah. a 12 year old. Yeah. And that's, you know, you talk about kids being mean. Yes. Especially females. It, oh, yes. Know, and and yes. now with social media and stuff. Oh, yeah. Social uh, media, even for adults. It, it is the devil. It is. If you use but my philosophy on that is. Social media is not a bad thing. It's how you use it. And mm-hmm. if you, I'm, I stay positive. I stay, and I try to inform people, but all that other stuff and even adults. Oh. I'm like, are you kidding use me? Use it as a weapon. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, this is unreal. And so being able to have the right perspective about who you are as a person and that you have value and you have a voice. And I think that was for me the biggest thing that I learned for myself. What I have to say matters. It matters to me. And so for me not to say my truth, speak my truth, for anybody not to speak their truth, I think that does something to them. And so that's why I, I, you know, I encourage my kids to talk to me. I ask them what they think. I ask them, you know, what matters to them. I ask them that because I know how detrimental it can be when you don't and you treat children not like a human, I don't say not like a human, but I don't, I don't, I tell people I'm not raising children. I'm raising adults. They're not going to be kids forever. I have to teach them how to navigate and live in this world, especially as African-American men and all the stuff that goes on, which scares me to death, but mm-hmm. that's a whole nother conversation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so and the people that you, you work with and, and your experience thus far, where do you see the stigma? I mean, where, how do you see it play out? Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing I will say is um, I know that people need help. And the reason I know that, because when I look at the statistics on number of hits to my website or anything like that, we're talking about thousands. Really? Thousands. Good. Thousands. But I don't see that coming to the office. Sure, right. And so there's something that's blocking them from coming in. And I don't like to use this word, but I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. No, don't. It's It's not what it's about. I don't like when people say that. Okay. This is about what's bothering you. You being able to tell your story and move through it. What I find people do is they don't like to, so things will happen in their life and they'll jump over the feelings and they'll keep on living. They'll push it down and keep pushing it down and push it down and push it down. Especially, and most of my clients are women, but there's a whole nother dynamic with African-American men. But with African-American women, I can speak to that because I am one. It's this image of this strong black woman and nothing ever gets her. When you're dying inside. Mm -hmm. Okay. Who told us we had to be that way? But I think, again, it's a societal thing to say, I am this strong person and I can handle anything that comes my way. When really, that's not how we were designed. (laughs) You know, we are mind, body and spirit. We are mind, body and soul. So you have to take care of all of that. And it's not just about bombarding your way through life. It's about you knowing who you are and living 
in your purpose. That's that's the way that I see it, because I think that's what really has brought me a certain level of peace is knowing who I am and what my purpose is. And I really feel like that I am now walking in my purpose versus doing the things that other people expected me to do. Do you feel like it's working? For me? No, no, for the people that you're... Oh, okay. The services (laughs) that you offer and and the the people that you feel like the the walls are being, you know, chipped away a little bit? Oh, I I think it's definitely chipping, but there's so much more to, to... So much more work to do. So... I look for opportunities where I can be that person or insert myself in a space that, you know, people say, I didn't know you were out here. I didn't know you were out here. And then, I, of course, I tell my clients, if you know anybody, send them to me, refer them to me. If I can help in any way, that's what I want to do. Um, I know Taraji P. Henson has been doing some work with her foundation about mental health. And one of the things she had said was, again, advocating for more clinicians of color because, you know, whether people believe it or not. And I've had I've had uh, therapists who are black. I've had therapists who are white. I've had therapists who are male. I've had therapists who are female. And at that moment, I needed that. Okay, but so many of my people that called me said, I called you because you were African-American. And I've had insurance companies and not necessarily insurance companies, but maybe EAP program. They said, you know, well, we really don't uh, match people based on their race. And I'm like, oh, my God, that person does not get it. And I think, again, it's it's relating Yes, exactly. Being able to relate. And because of the history of African-Americans in this country, there's still a lot of people who don't trust people who don't look like them. Okay? And that's real. And if we don't address it, if we we try to say it doesn't exist, we're not being honest. And like I said, it didn't necessarily matter with me, even though I will tell you my first therapist was a... African-American woman. But for me, it was more important about getting the help that I needed. And I want people to be able to get to that at some point in time, but we got to meet people where they're at as well. Yeah. Would you say that it's harder for people of color to address mental health challenges because of the additional societal obstacles that are in the way or that could be part of the problem that gets in there? Yeah, I think it's multifaceted. I don't think it's any one thing because, again, some people don't tell their their families that they're going because they're afraid of what they're going to say. Okay. And I've had clients tell me that, too. They're like, you know, I would never tell my family that I'm going here because then I would hear all this stuff that I don't need to hear right now. But, again, I think that goes to, again, understanding that people are scared of what they don't understand. And people think they might think therapy is X when it's not really X, it's Y. And I and so I think that's part of it as well. So that's one of the reasons why I just encourage people just come one time. And some people have had bad experiences as, as well with therapists. Oh. And so, again, I tell my clients, not every client counselor relationship is going to work. But 
it still doesn't mean you don't need the help. Right. And so you got to give it a chance. You got to give it a try if you're struggling with anything that is affecting the quality of your life. Definitely. So t- talking about youth, um, an article I read from CBS News about mm-hmm. um, suicide rates among black children increasing mm-hmm. um, pretty rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen like kids with school talking about their experiences? Uh, do you see that? I have had exposure to that. Uh, I haven't had exposure. Actually, no, I haven't had exposure on, to that on both the male and the female side of it. Um, and I think it's been for different reasons. There's a lot of trauma out there. So I I can tell you that some of my the personal experiences that I've had is because of the trauma that the people have endured. But I also think that social media is another aspect of it because am I getting my identity or this dream of mine from what these people are saying on social media about me or about other people? So especially the uh, uh, the celebrities, you know, it's like I want to have a million dollars and all this and all this. And I'm like, you know, they have problems, too. You don't see that. You see this snapshot of this car and this beautiful clothes and all of that, but you don't really understand what all of that is about. And for young, impressionable minds, that's what they focus on. And so, again, the balance, you know, one of the things I taught my kids, and not to say it could never happen with my children, I can't say that, but, you know, one of the things that I used to tell them is I used to make sure they understood what was real and what was not real. Or what was uh, uh, like not, you know, because most of the kids are so literal. And when they see something, they think that it's in stone. But it's right. like, guys, no, that's not life. Okay. And and so they, you need a engaged parent. You need a parent who wants, uh, you know, one of the things I uh, talk about with kids it's, and parents is, what do you want for your child? What do you want for your child? Do you want your child to have a better life than you had? Most parents, that's what they want. And so the question is, how do we get that? And if you're not able to give that to them for whatever reason, seek out the resources that are going to enable you to fill in those gaps. And don't be ashamed of it because you can't teach what you never learned. So allow someone else to help. And I think that's another thing. It's like, again, so I think it's it's multifaceted. Going back to the, I don't need any help. I can do this myself type of attitude. It's like, no, takes a village, takes right. a village. Yeah. And I think on the, on the flip side of that is, you know, millennials and these newer generations get a hard time for being lazy or needy or, you know, but that's parents. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, so not only do I want you to have a better life than me, but I'm going to coddle you through right. it. Exactly. And I'm going to give everybody a trophy. Yeah. And I'm going to live vicariously through you. Yes. You know, and that's when parents become. You know, Hindrances. They, yes. You know. <laughs> Hindrance or help. And so, again, we want the best for our children. And that's, I think, across any culture, race, whatever. But. I'm trying to equip them. I'm not trying to make them codependent 
which is real. Right. Absolutely. It's, it's real. real. Such a tap. It's a tap dance. Yeah. And of I, education versus, yes. you know, privilege or right. you know, enabling. And, and again, we had, a you know, being at Procter & Gamble and my son is told me, he's like, my friends think we're rich. I'm like, no, we're not rich. <laughs> I said, everything I have, I had to work for it. Okay. And I wanted you guys to have a better life, but there's still these things that you have to be responsible for. My kids work. My kids are in school. It was none of this. I mean, my kids, my kids will tell me, oh, I don't want to go to school on my birthday because such and such doesn't have to go to school on their birthday. Is your birthday on the weekend? Then you're going to school. You know, we don't do that. Stuff comes up, you know, <laughs> stuff comes up. Same thing. Like, can I have a sleepover on a school night? No. No. Right. Exactly. Well, we did it once, which was, you know, it was totally going right. against what we believe in. But, you know, it's different. Right. It's you know? different. And and letting them learn those lessons while they're under your protection. And 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 asking them, what did you learn? What did you learn from this? We can't rescue our children from everything. Cause then they're not gonna be capable of dealing with stuff. And that's, life will not get any easier. No, it's, or kinder. It's gonna get harder. Right. The more you're, and that's what I tell my clients too. When you're like, you're when you're little, your life is kind of small, but as it grows and grows and grows, if you're not equipped to handle this, you're gonna probably get anxiety. You're probably gonna get depression because you don't know how to deal with this stuff. And that's and I and I think I, and I I felt like I was not equipped when I got out of high school. I didn't know anything about life. I knew things about books and I knew how to study and get good grades and stuff, but I didn't know anything about life because my mom didn't teach me that. And I'd be darned if I wasn't going to pass that on to my kids. Right. They're going to learn something. And I think they do. Sometimes they think I'm off my rocker, but <laughs> that's okay. Are they open? And I mean, have, are they, are they, Kind of following suit and talking about things if they have stuff on their mind? My oldest does. My youngest doesn't. And that scares me. But he does have a group of friends. And I know. And so I don't. The thing that I have to think about, and I tell this to my parents who have teenagers that come to see me. You got to separate the hormones from the trauma, if there is any trauma, from the just being a teenager because I did not know how to be a teenager. So I'm learn I learned a lot of stuff from my kids growing up. And some people say, I've raised my kids, but my kids raised me. So my oldest son, he talks to me. He talks because that's the kind of child he is. My youngest, when he needs me, he will call me, but he doesn't, he's not a talker. So that's another thing, learning my kids and learning. But also reinforcing that if you need me, I will be there to help guide you through this, but not rescuing them from everything that they, especially if they put themselves in that situation. Right. Okay. Final statement. What can we do to, to lift the stigma, to work on it, and to uh, get people the help that they need? Talk. We have to talk about it. Not talking about it is not going to help. And even if you talk to a person that might be having trouble and say, well, have you tried this? And then also maybe going with them if you can, because sometimes, you know, they say the first step is the hardest. 
So being able to take that step, because I guarantee you, once you find the right therapist, you're going to be like, why haven't I done this? Right. It's, it, it is. That's what you're going to say. Right. So how can we find you? Oh, uh, I have a website. My business name is True Calling Counseling because, again, I named it after this is I really feel like this is my true calling. So it's True Calling Counseling and Consulting Services. I do have a website. Can I give it? Sure. Okay. Absolutely. My website is www.truecallingc.com. C is in Charlie, C is in Charlie, S is in Sam dot com. And my business phone number is 513-242-0076. And if I can't help you, I would be more than happy to speak with you and uh, point you in the right direction. Well, we'll and we'll put all that, all your contact info on the on the episode okay, uh, description fantastic. and notes. and. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you for the opportunity. I so appreciate this. You are an extraordinarily uh, strong woman and have been through a lot and now uh, giving back. Yes. And I know uh, I can't imagine how much you help the people you work with. And hopefully you'll continue to help thousands more. Yes. And that's the plan. Yeah. So thanks for being here. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound. Artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com. <laughs>